same air received all offerings. And men beginning to look around observed that the offerings were usually similar. They then went on a little further and they discovered that the same number of deities were in the different sanctuaries and that the deities of similar uh, definition had similar appearance and attributes. And we must not assume for a moment that antiquity was essentially stupid. These individuals observing these things could only come to one possible conclusion, namely that there were strong similarities, even identities, between these faiths. And after uh, all, they had had 1,200 or more years to catch up with the idea that the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten had already expressed, namely that there never had been but one God, and that all men worshipped him under different names. The Romans and other peoples under their dominion had the opportunity to see this worshipping under many names. And out of this came perhaps the idea uh, that the basic reconciliation lay in the fact that there was one basic divine principle and that this divine principle variously named and defined was the principal deity in all these pantheons. We observe men like the Emperor Julian contemplating this very thoughtfully and strengthening our belief that such could have been the case when he gave us his two great orations, one to the Sovereign Son and the other to the Mother of the Gods. He tells us beyond doubt that his own contemplations have shown him the universality of a divine principle. Consequently, it is not necessary that this should have been imposed upon men, either by the Christianity or by Hermeticism. Already philosophy had acknowledged it, but in the old days when nations were separate and the commerce between them was very slight, peoples of various nations did not know the beliefs of their brothers and their neighbors. Gradually, as this knowledge improved, became more aware of these things, uh, the public mind itself inevitably produced this concept of the over-deity. The deity that did not destroy the other gods. Nor was this deity merely one becoming victorious and gaining special veneration. It was a new dimension of deity, a permeating penetrating universal power, a power in which all things shared and which was the common life of all living. Thus it would be inevitable that if this concept arose in the minds of progressive thinkers that it would be the natural substance for the integration of sect or creed or cult or faith. It is also quite possible, as always is the case, uh, that early rising of such belief would be secret. That men would gather first to mature their own ideas, 
and to escape the eternal stigma of unorthodoxy which has followed thinkers since the beginning of time. Thus these precious discoveries, following in the pattern and practice of the older mysteries, would be uh, communicated only to an elect, only to those who were regarded as capable of understanding correctly this new dimension of things. Which brings us to the next point in connection with the Hermetic philosophy, and that is its relationship to the mystery systems of the world at that time. We have mentioned the state religions. We must always remember that behind each state religion was some kind of a mystical or metaphysical structure. Antiquity did not know of a religion without mysteries. And by mysteries now we do not mean secrets in the general sense of the word, but structures, ethical, moral, spiritual institutions, sacred colleges or schools. And they were called mysteries because they were sealed or closed from the profane, even as though they had been closed by some kind of an hermetic stubble. These mysteries always had a deeper dimension than the general opinions of the people. As far back as the 6th century, when Pythagoras traveled throughout the, uh, the Near East and the southern parts of Europe and finally into Far Asia, he came back fully convinced that in their esoteric schools all the great religions of the world were already teaching the same thing. The average person hadn't discovered this, however. Perhaps we can suspect that the confusion resulting in the collapse of the outer structure of religion of many of these peoples threw a great and sudden weight upon the esoteric schools and these esoteric schools were not essentially theological as we know it today, and therefore they were not quite as vulnerable as the so-called popular religions. These so-called esoteric schools were actually institutions of higher learning. And even though you might lose faith in your deities, you could not deny the multiplication table. You could not deny the value of herbs and medicines in healing. You could not deny the secrets of bone setting. You could not deny the motion of the heavenly bodies nor the secrets of navigation. You could no longer perhaps accept certain beliefs, but you were still leaning heavily upon jurisprudence, which was originally taught in these temples. You were leaning very heavily upon the laws and canons of art, of sculpture and of music. All the great scientific knowledge which was originally dedicated to the gods and was disseminated through the schools of these gods, this knowledge did not die with the popular faith. Thus uh, the uh, esoteric schools, or the mysteries, perhaps came forward more rapidly after the decline of the state religions, men now had a new level of value upon which to pin their faith. And it is quite possible that it was at this time uh, that the 
gradual shift from a spiritual to a scientific way of life actually began. And as it took thousands of years to create the philosophical religious systems of the ancients, the last 2,000 years has been largely dedicated to the shift from the theological foundation of exoteric religion to the great mystery sciences of esoteric religion. In any event, uh, the learned, the leading minds, those who became the opinion makers of their own days, uh, certainly must have recognized that you could not destroy uh, the school with the temple, that the school had to go on, that man still had to learn. The increasing dignity of the school is, is expressed in Neoplatonism, Gnosticism, and Hermetic philosophy, and to a degree in the Essene and Therapeutae doctrine, certainly in the Kabbalism of the early uh, Jewish mystics, rising from Rabbi Akiva, who belongs to this same critical period, and is just about as difficult to orient as any of the others. Uh, all of this seems to show that the universe began to emerge as a great wonder of law. We no longer hear of the gods walking around the earth concealed as mortals, or riding away into heaven in chariots. We no longer see winged immortals flying in space. We hear no more of nymphs and hamadryads. These things vanish. Instead of that, we begin to hear of the teachers, the great illuminators, those who came with extraordinary knowledge, those who made possible the advancement of arts and sciences, and those who gradually transformed the beliefs of men into a kind of moral philosophy or ethical system, a system based almost entirely upon the philosophic premise of adjustment to disillusionment. Philosophy is actually man's reconciliation with the inevitable. And in that we see it emerging. We see it coming more and more into the foreground. And we find men like Hermes or beings like Hermes no longer simply telling stories and fables about the gods or writing hymns about deities or perpetuating the powers of arbitrary deities. We find Hermes and these others beginning to talk about structure, about the universal law of living, and we know that out of the North African Hermetic tradition, almost certainly the astronomical theory of Ptolemy came into existence. The theory that controlled the thinking of men until the day of the Copernican rediscovery of the old heliocentric idea. We find law, lawfulness, education, culture, coming forward very rapidly, apparently from nowhere, and spearheaded by mysterious phantom-like persons. Let's pause for a moment and uh, consider uh, for the Neoplatonism, which was in the same general area. 
It is now generally believed that Neoplatonism was founded by a man called Ammonius Saccas. Ammonius Saccas was a sort of North African Aesop. He was a strange man uh, of no education as far as is known, and his name implies his trade. He was a carrier of bundles, burdens, and trunks. He was Ammonius of the Sack, and he delivered goods for people and received a small amount of money for transporting and transferring uh, freight and baggage. He was sometimes referred to as a porter, certainly as a carrier of burdens. This man is supposed to have suddenly burst out with one of the most transcendent systems of mysticism the world has ever known. How he received it, where it came from, no one has been able to say. Yet this man, unlettered, unschooled, unlearned, drew around himself one of the most brilliant academy of thinkers that the world has ever known, including such minds as Plotinus, Iamblichus, and other leading thinkers of his day. Finally, to produce in Athens a little later the glorious, glittering figure of Proclus, who is called, or surnamed, the Platonic successor. Uh, the rise of Neoplatonism is a mystery, and has always remained a mystery. Yet there is a dark hint that behind Ammoniosacus was another person, that for some reason this other person chose to be represented by the common bearer of burdens. Now who is this bearer of burdens? Perhaps it is the same bearer of which there is reference in the Bible, of cast your burdens upon the Lord. Also there are many concepts of Jesus as bearing the burden of the world's woe or bearing the burden of mortal sin. This burden bearer keeps appearing in many localities, certainly a possible symbolic statement or concept. But who and uh, what uh, was the, uh, the force behind this. It is quite possible that these persons simply represented teachers or initiated masters sent out of the schools or of the mystery system or stepping in because of their superior knowledge into the vacuum left by the collapse of popular theology and moving the entire concept onto a new level. It could well be that under such a situation, this breaking through could have occurred in many places at almost the same time because the need was general. And the need in this case produced an almost perfectly structured breakthrough in a dozen places simultaneously. We may assume that these were inspirational, but we may also assume that the temples were the source of the inspiration for they had been for a very long time. Furthermore, as soon as this breakthrough occurred, as soon as the world in general began to think scientifically, philosophically, cosmologically, and to begin to use the instrument of symbolism with a certain intuitive apperception, the moment this breakthrough took place, the mystery schools vanished. 
And from that time in the Western world we heard no more of them until a very much later date, hundreds of years later, when we find the rising of Christian mysticism in Europe. But probably a thousand years passed, and the great institutions of Elysis and Samothrace, the ritualistic temples of Memphis and Luxor, Karnak, the great temples of Egypt, particularly Memphis of the White Walls, all these disappeared. We find, for example, that with the rise of Christian mysticism in Syria, the Essenes disappeared, and no one has the slightest knowledge of what happened to them. They vanished. The moment the breakthrough took place, the old schools that had been the custodians of the lore and had only accepted candidates under oath and obligation, the schools vanished. The uh, one possible solution to this is that once the arcana, or the secret of the schools, the knowledge which they had so long religiously guarded, became public, their own existence ceased. Because you cannot maintain a secret that is out, nor can you initiate people to gain a special knowledge which they can gain without it. Uh, this, the levels that these schools represented then moved into society to become an objective, recognized system. In the hundreds of years that followed, we have the building upon these foundations because this revelation of laws was a pretty tremendous thing and it brought out foundations that could not be immediately uh, exhausted nor fully built upon. It has taken centuries to build upon these foundations even as far as we have today. And without the knowledge of the Greeks and Egyptians of 2,500 years ago, modern man would never have advanced his knowledge of electronic or atomic energy. Because he is actually making his calculations with the instruments that were given to him by the Greeks, Egyptians, and Arabs. Thus, from the emerging of these things, we begin to see why out of the ruin of a theology which had failed due to the wars that had destroyed men's faith in the ancient gods, there arose a new object or a new instrument of faith. Faith in wisdom. Faith in essential value. And this wisdom gradually became synonymous with God. Deity was no longer the Olympian despot. Deity was now the extraordinarily wise father, the old learned one. Deity was moving gradually into the relationship of the mentor, of the great teacher. And in the uh, speculations upon this subject, it was not difficult to imagine that this universal mind this power that was behind the whole great institution of learning should suddenly blaze forth as the most convincing concept of deity that there was. So God became no longer a symbol of power, but a symbol of wisdom. This was something that actually the Greeks did not have. The Greeks had deity as an object of veneration, and in the Mithraic hymns, and not Mithraic, the Orphic hymns, we find a great adoration for deity. But the Olympian gods were a rather frivolous lot as a whole. 
they had some other strange and inconsistent practices and were not entirely admirable, as even Socrates pointed out. There were some scandals among the immortals that were better not mentioned even by the Greeks. <laughs> some of these scandals, rather well whitewashed, have descended to us in Bullfinch's mythology of the Greeks and Romans. Whatever scandals, however, were whitewashed by the Greeks were revealed in their full splendor by the Romans. And it was not uh, the state religion. It was the great school of philosophers rebelling against it. Not rebelling against the gods, but rebelling against the literal acceptance of, of doctrines which they held to have mystical or secret meaning that made possible the rise of Pythagoras and Plato. Because it was the duty of these men to refine and improve and deepen and broaden the concept of religion. That men should realize that these fables were actually stories of secrets and wonders that could only be fully understood by those who had been initiated into the sacred colleges and rites. And that then in these schools the keys were given by means of which these fables were unlocked in all their internal splendor, a man could begin to appreciate the greatness of the things which he had once regarded as frivolous. This, re this remedying of an obvious defect, resulting from man outgrowing his own infancy, the uh, great philosophers uh, strenuously attempted to achieve, and they did to a great degree. Gradually, the world caught up with them, and these philosophical systems that were once for the few became increasingly significant to the many. Now, this tremendous rise of intellectual rebellion against limitation brought also with it a certain inevitable reaction. You know, we find, for instance, a very interesting thing that as soon as the public mind began to be highly philosophy conscious, the philosophers gradually became mystics. The leaders departed from this pattern also and began to emphasize a purely theistic, intuitive approach to deity. It seemed as though they instinctively realized that intellectualism would run the whole thing into the ground, finally that men substituting mind for God were going to fall under the horns of another dilemma. They were going to gradually grow great with pride. They were going to worship their own thoughts. And they were going to adore the products of their own mind. And they were going to lose the basic intuitive power which comes only from humility. Thus, even at the beginning, you see the struggle taking form that was finally to emerge, the philosophizing and the revelation of certain great secrets from the temples could no longer be stopped. The breaking down of the mystery institutions, the final dispersing of the priesthoods, the conquering of the areas, the, the pillaging of the great sanctuaries, scattering their teachers, meant only the inevitable need for the preservation of ideas and the only way to preserve them was to throw them into the very public mind from which they had once been protected.
because only then could the common man be the keeper of the mystery. Otherwise it would have died with that generation. But no sooner had this occurred than it became obvious that a great danger was also presenting itself. And this probably was the one great surviving, preserving factor that threw a number of these early important leaders into the Christian camp. Here was an important control or directive against the rising of the wisdom principle to the point of mental arrogance. Here was humility. Here was a simple doctrine of human relationships. Here was a simple teaching of the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God and do good. Serve, love, have faith, and practice the virtues. This coming into conflict with the revelation of exact knowledge seemingly occurs in pattern in the mingling of the wisdom of the old mystery systems with the emotional, mystical content which was so present in human nature. And these mingling produced the heresies. They produced the conflicts which mutilated the first six centuries of the Christian era. Here then we had the beginning of the schismatic difficulties. We had the wisdom principle and the love or emotion principle drawing apart, trying to build a bridge, each attempting to absorb the other, each determined to preserve itself against absorption. And finally, in many instances, parting as foes, and each going its own way, deprived of the most valuable of all factors, that which would have been reconciliation, the bringing of these things together, so that we could have had an enlightened love, and we could have had a truly spiritualized human idealized wisdom. The dividing of these two groups has never been completely overcome. But the mind, being by nature a dominant and inquisitive instrument, has continued to dominate and has continued to lead man into intellectual, intellectual segregation ever since that time. Until today, mind dominates practically every attitude and action of the human being. Our emetic problem then seems to deal with the breakthrough in North Africa of certain secret instructions. We know that the priests of Amun-Ra, those who wrote the rituals of the dead, those who gave the ancient Egyptian Ammonism, and later the Osirian religious cult, those who swung their censers before the altars of the great old gods. These priests, with their chants, their rituals, their rites and their ceremonies, were not the builders of the pyramid. The builders of the pyramid were mathematicians, masters of geometry, deeply versed in astronomy, possessors of exact sciences. 
These exact sciences, therefore, moved behind the surface of Egyptian religion. And Dr. Preston pointed out that he was, he told me one day that he was uh, convinced that the Egyptian hieroglyphics have at least two different methods of being read. One being a sacerdotal language, a language of priestly process, and the other in some way related to the mystery systems. Dr. Preston was convinced that behind the surface of Egyptian religion was this great wisdom cult, the cult that produced Imhotep, the father of medicine, the cult which made possible the building of these great monuments, and also the gradual regulation of the laws of Egypt until Egypt became probably one of the most magnificently integrated cultures in the history of antiquity. These things were practical achievements, achievements that could only have arisen from adequate knowledge. The people did not possess that knowledge. The Egyptian lived and died without it. Uh, the, uh, ruler, the rulers of Egypt, although initiated into the priesthood, did not always possess it. Actually, it was held by a group an organization, a secret body of persons. And this secret body perpetuated itself by rites and ceremonies, as described by Plutarch in his Mysteries of Isis and Osiris. This breaking through in Egypt seems to have given us the basic principles of Hermetic philosophy, because these principles deal with certain things, the true nature of deity. The true nature of deity here interpreted as the eternal mind which brings all things into existence by the power of thought. Thus, Thoth, Thought, Hermes, Mercury, gives us the concept of a world that exists in the divine mind, a projection and manifestation of the eternal thinker. And he tells us that the world is the non-eternal thought of that eternal thinker that all things are supported on the warp and woof of thought, thought, thoth, for our word thought comes from his name. This being, therefore, which is the creating power, creates by will, creates by the exercise of secret attributes. This deity is not a highly glorified Louis the Sixteenth. This deity is not the Zeus of ancient Greece, nor the Jupiter of the Latins. This is a mystery god, a god without form, of which all things are the form, a god without dimensions or proportions, but containing all dimensions and proportions within its own nature, a god of seven powers, which are seven arts and sciences, and a god ruling by the inevitable motion of its own being, and this motion, absolute law. When we begin to see this, we begin to see that we are escaping from most of the type of thinking that wrecked antiquity. We are moving forward into something, and we do not know how it was concealed as long as it was, but that it appeared spontaneously in many areas, and that it is intimated by men like Pythagoras and Plato, who were initiates, to have existed. 
intimated by Apuleius and Plutarch to have existed, referred to arcanely by Cicero and Seneca, known to the Emperor Julian as the result of his own initiation at Ephesus, and appearing again in the apocalyptical writings of the New Testament. These factors breaking through seem to tell us beyond any reasonable doubt that this structure of the Corpus Hermeticum was the beginning of, or one of the beginnings, of the effort to build a complete scientific philosophical foundation under the collapsing religions of antiquity. That this information had been previously perfected and that the outstanding examples of this perfection would be found in the great architectural and legal documents of antiquity, such as the Code of Hammurabi, probably the earliest and one of the most enlightened of all um, legal codes. That it is to be found concealed in various ways in the proportions and dimensions of ancient buildings. That it roots in mathematics, that it roots in subjects so ancient that we cannot even trace their beginnings. That there was also a consistent integrated concept of the solar system, of the universe, of space, of time, of energy, and all of these things, which certainly form no part of the decadent ceremonials of the old later Roman priesthood, whose principal concerns was, were to be sure that they had the right cap on and that they were wearing the red slippers without which they could not perform their sacred duties. And when asked why they wore the red slippers, the answer seemed to be because their forefathers had sacrificed animals and stood with their feet in the blood. These things became a kind of orthodoxy. But behind it all was, was this other, greater thing. And when Julius Caesar sacrificed to the gods as em emperor deity, he certainly did not know these other things, or he would not have conducted his life in the way that he did. So this double body of learning came out, and we find it striking in Syria through the Syrian Gnosis, and in Alexandria through the Alexandrian Gnosis, through the Corpus Hermeticum, through the Neoplatonists, and through the rise of Christianity and the impact of Essenian and Therapeutic thinking in North Africa. All of this body of material arising almost at the same time, all with the same basic dimension of released thinking, and also, for the first time, polarized thinking. You'll remember that when uh, medicine was still in the sanctuary and was serviced by priest physicians, uh, that there were no legislations in Rome for the deportment of a doctor. The moment, however, medicine left the temple and physicians became secular, it was necessary within ten years to create one of the most elaborate legal systems in the world to prevent medical malpractice. The moment the sacredness of the thing was removed, the moment there was the secular physician, there was the need for medical reform almost within the day. The same thing happened in this intellectual field. The moment the knowledge of the power, potential, and possibility of the human mind was equipped with the instruments of knowledge, 
instruments which Cicero and Seneca also mentioned. Immediately, it was necessary to create legislation, real or theoretical, to prevent the abuse of knowledge. And from that time on today, we are still trying to find out how to prevent that abuse, and we have not by any means succeeded. Against this abuse, we have thrown a great moral framework. And today, even in our present emergency, we are using religion to combat the destructiveness of materialistic scientific thinking. And by an instinct, without any actual integration, without anyone being able as a person to require it or demand it, the age of atomics has resulted in the greatest age of religious revival the world has had in at least a thousand years. So back in the first century, the rise of a great scientific concept of life threw immediately into perspective the need for this great religious reform. So the scientific phase of it, the philosophical phase of it, and Christianity as the religious phase of it all came into existence together each part of a need, each essential to an orientation. Now, what was the actual wisdom orientation of that time? Were the individuals involved in that revelation actually as wise as some think they were, or as foolish as some others think they were? Can we honestly say today, looking back upon the first century, that those people knew anything that we do not know. I think we can be almost forced to answer in the affirmative that they did. Because actually, in order to exhaust what they knew, we have to exhaust something which we have not yet exhausted. That is the instrument by means of which we are capable of creative knowing. It is one thing to copy the past, which we have done. It is one thing to take a Roman sewer pipe and make a better one today. It is one thing to take an Egyptian lute and make a more perfect instrument of it. It is one thing to take a Syrian trumpet and make a a peculiar uh, hook in it or twist it and form it into what we call a trombone. That is all within the possibility of things. Actually, our French horn has not changed much in the last 2,000 years. It is quite possible to take a piece of Coptic or Greek fabric and create new ways of weaving it. It is possible to use the Greek mathematical theory and find constant applications for it. But these do not represent the basic point. Sometimes, somewhere, someone created geometry. This creation consisted not of bringing something out of nothing, but of a peculiar type of trained intuitive observationalism by means of which a human being suddenly recognized the universe as a geometric manifestation of universal energy. This individual had the power to see geometry in nature, or sense it, or begin to organize it. 
somebody else saw for the first time the analogies between music and number. Another individual saw somewhere, somehow, the basic principle of chemistry and the chemical combinations of elements. Somewhere there were basic thoughts. The basic thought of the 47th proposition of Pythagoras or the Euclidean proposition. Study your ancient contributions in astronomy, geometry, music, rhetoric, grammar. Somewhere these things had perhaps not a fully developed emergence, but a series of creative impulses by which that appeared which was not previously available. We have not exhausted antiquity until we have reached a point where we can create knowledge rather than merely extend existing knowledge. When the individual of today can create something as absolutely independent as arithmetic, he may then say that he has a creative power to exhaust and has exhausted the previous contributions of his people. But as long as he merely uses arithmetic, he has lacked that tremendous creativity which is the basis of the wisdom of antiquity, the power to be the first to know something. Now, we may say that everything worth knowing has already been found, so we can't do it. This is untrue. There are more firsts waiting than have ever yet been revealed. But as long as we are content to use rather than to create, we have lost one dimension of thinking. And that dimension is the very thing that the Hermetic Doctrine is concerned with, namely man's ability to become conscious within and of the universal mind itself, so that every individual creates with the mind of God, or with the universal divine intellect. Thus, the end of all knowing, according to the Hermetic system, is that men will not think about God or think of God, but think with God. And this statement still poses one of the most difficult situations with which the average individual can intellectually be confronted, because we cannot even understand fully what this implication actually is. But we do know that at a time less blessed than our own, when the opportunities for knowledge were much less than ours, when the instruments of available learning were far more deficient than ours, men had the creativity which established all of our great instruments of knowledge. Therefore, that this creativity lay within consciousness itself, was not acquired but was innate, and that the solution to all things lies in the innate solutional power of the universal mind in man. Now that someone two thousand years ago should have sounded this is important, and it is easy to see why this idea could not die, why it had to continue to exercise an influence 
And it is also possible to estimate from this why this orientation uh, could have been involved in the corpus hermeticum. The idea of this one consciousness, the author of all knowledge, this one mind, the substance of all good, and of course, with it all, the vision of the way in which man through the development of the special and particular faculties of his own consciousness, might in some way and in due time attain to identity with this mind. We will learn a little later that such is the burden of the, uh, the divine parmanda, or the shepherd of men. And we know that it is the burden of that department of the Neoplatonic thinking, which is called the theurgical part, namely the urge, the magic of fulfillment, the magic of doing, the magic not of listening nor learning, but the strange power to be one with truth. So back even in that day, men dreamed of the possibility of bringing their own consciousness in rapport with the universal consciousness. And the secret books of Hermes and the mysteries of the Hermetic doctrine were in one way or another concealed in this or were concerned with it. Thus, the moment we apply this key to alchemy, we change the entire perspective of these chemists. The transmutation of ignorance, the transmutation of not knowing into the state of pure enlightenment. Uh, the creation of the universal medicine, truth itself, which alone can heal all the sickness of ignorance wherever it is distributed. And the principal primary contribution of the Hermetic philosophy was that such a truth elixir was possible. That it was not the vain speculation of deluded persons. That it was not a hope beyond possibility. But that truth substantially was attainable. Perhaps not immediate. Perhaps not totally but that the motion toward truth was the motion toward solution of every problem, internal and external, as far as problem could beset man or any of his attributes. Thus, the, uh, the hermetic arts consisted of the arts of human regeneration. There is everything to indicate that they were influenced by Buddhism. Buddhism with its noble path of renunciation, it is quite possible that, it, that uh, the Hermetic philosophy was influenced by the earlier systems of Eastern mysticism that resulted in Yoga and Vedanta. It is quite possible and almost certain that this system was also influenced by the in part of the old Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin of the Jews, which dealt with the mystery of the Merkava, or the chariot of righteousness by means of which the prophet is transported to heaven without death. This chariot of righteousness, this chariot of Ezekiel, being the symbol of illumination, or the spiritual ecstasy by which man is moved from one world to another. Hermes himself describes this experience, or the writer of the Hermetic doctrine creates a person and causes that person to be the personification of the truth seeker, 
receiving into himself the experience peculiar to those who through dedication have become worthy of the truth. Thus in the Pamanda and in other hermetic fragments, universal mind or consciousness becomes the teacher instructing the disciple in the attainment of the great end of learning, which is the hermetic marriage or the hermetic union, the union of the mortal and the immortal in an indissolvable bond of amity. In these thinkings, then, we have the grounds for many mystical speculations that were to come at later date. We see the source of a large part of Christian mysticism. We begin to see why the more illumined church fathers must have recognized the same essential doctrine that they themselves were seeking to cultivate. They must also have realized that the experience of deity is the end of all spiritual quest. And because Hermeticism, uh, like the early church, was concerned with truth as an experience of consciousness, it could not be rejected totally, any more than the ethical experience of Plato could be rejected totally. So the orientation of our problem is historically in these centuries of change, these centuries by which certain directives arose in the thinking of man, and in the midst of these directives we see the rise of this very strange and elusive belief. A belief, however, which again never died, but became disseminated through a hundred sects, even reaching into the Near East to become very important in the teachings of the Dervishes and the Sufis. Thus this teaching moved in and on through time, losing its name after a very short time, but never losing its directive to the individual or its positive affirmation of the exact science of human illumination, illumination or redemption through the spiritual experience of illumination. These elements and these factors give us the orientation and will, I think, permit us to go on next week with a further analysis of the doctrine itself.